Every work team has moments of conflict and dysfunction. Sometimes productive conflict is a necessary part of wrestling through big ideas to get to the best possible outcome. But sometimes our teams become mired in conflict that is entirely avoidable because it's based in vastly different communication styles or different motivations and misunderstandings. Enter the Enneagram. The Enneagram offers not only self-awareness, but also curiosity and deeper understanding of others. I teach the Enneagram and consult with teams to improve their communication styles, conflict effectiveness, and self-leadership, all of which foster highly engaged and high-performing teams. During a recent team event, I heard over and over, this just makes so much sense when they looked around the room and saw who was fitting within each type. And now I know why this person asked so many questions or this depersonalizes some of the conflict we've been having because I can tell we're just coming from different perspectives. So now that we know where we are, we can see how we can get aligned. So if you're looking for ongoing support or simply considering an engaging introspective module for your team's offsite or event, let's talk. Reach out to the Nine Types team at hello at ninetypes.co or schedule a one-on-one consultation with me on my website, ninetypes.co. And now on to the show. I will say that this is just element of authority stuff there with the six as well as that we feel very responsible for our actions and we're trying not to project, but in the process we project. So if it were me, you know, projection means I'm taking what's true about me and assuming that about everybody. And so in my head, I'm assuming that I'm going to be at fault if I miss the flight or I'm going to be at fault if I chose the wrong microwave or couch or whatever. I'm going to be at fault if I made a bad decision because I didn't think it through. You got to think it through. And so that whole inner thought committee thing Mm -hmm. about thinking it through is really a way of saying that's what responsible authoritarian figures should do. So if I'm making a decision and no one else is making it with me, well, then I want to consult someone. That's what it would be, the responsible thing. And so it's not like the right thing. It's not like what I feel, but it really is this responsibility, authority thing because we desperately don't, we desperately want to be trusted. And at the same time, we don't trust others. Mm-hmm. So it's a real... It's a real merry-go-round there. Like, if I can't trust myself, then why would I trust anyone else? Welcome back to another episode of Enneagram in Real Life, a podcast where we explore how to apply our Enneagram knowledge in our daily lives. I'm your host, Steph Baron hall and today I'm talking with my friend, Marta Gilliland. Now, I'll share a little bit more about Marta in a, a moment, but here is her official sort of introduction. Marta has taught in public and private schools, both in the U.S. and in Europe. Marta has a master's degree in global leadership from Fuller Seminary and has over 25 years of experience in teaching, leadership teams, small group dynamics, and individual coaching. Marta has extensive practical experience interweaving the complexities of the Enneagram into everyday life coaching for all types of people. Marta teaches Enneagram in classes, small groups, and retreats, but her passion is coaching and mentoring, relationship building, and leadership development. She's traveled extensively, but calls Kansas City, Missouri her home. And I got to meet Marta when we were both students in the Chestnut Pies Enneagram Academy. And to graduate from the program, you have to do case studies in small groups, meaning you have to meet I think we met a couple times a month and we had to write these different projects together. So we got to know each other then. And we also have been in a book group for the last year and a half or so, um, where we explore the Enneagram and talk about Enneagram and our work, everything that's happening for us individually. And all of the women in this group are also coaches from the Chestnut Pies Enneagram Academy. And you've heard some of the others on the podcast, like Shelly Prevost and Ellie Pugh. And today I asked Marta to come on the podcast and share her story. Now, Marta is an Enneagram six. So she talks a lot about what that's like and kind of what that looks like. You already heard a little bit in the intro, but she also 
talks about what happens for a six when the worst case scenario does happen. So today we're talking about her process, grieving her the loss of her husband and what it was like walking through that time as he underwent cancer treatments, as well as everything that has happened since then. And I just really have such gratitude for Marta's perspective and her wisdom and her kindness coming to share with us today, because it's not only an insight into the Enneagram, but also into how to support other people um, when our loved ones are, are processing grief. I think in our culture, we have a hard time with grief. We kind of say, oh, they're dealing with it really well when somebody seems to just pick up and keep going. And today, Marta talked a little bit about what that process was actually like for her and what it means to be okay and not okay at the same time. And especially this week and these past few weeks, there's been so much grief the world over. And I just have such compassion for people who are grieving. And so this episode is not just about the Enneagram, but more so about how do we support each other and how do we live compassionately? Um, because none of us escape grief in our lives. Um, and so Marta brings some real insight and she also brings in that trademark six wit and humor into the conversation. Um, and I just appreciate her perspective so much. I wish that we'd had more time to talk because she's told me some really funny stories about what it's like to be an Enneagram six. Um, and I think in in a classic six way, she's able to hold both like the darkness and the heaviness and the grief, as well as the humor and the lightness. And and she's she can be a bit self deprecating too. And so I just think she's very endearing. Um, and I I just deeply appreciate her sharing herself and her story and her perspective with all of us. And I also want to mention that because I have known Marta for a few years, I've also experienced her leading a retreat and uh, group coaching sort of exercises that were really impactful and transformational. So if you are looking for somebody to teach the Enneagram or to guide you through it in a with a more spiritual perspective, I definitely recommend Marta. Her website is not quite live yet, but you can grab her email and I recommend reaching out to her and I will update everything when her website is live. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Marta Gilliland. Well, Marta, hello. Welcome Hi. to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to talk with you about the Enneagram. I don't think I've had very many sixes on the podcast so far. So I think that this will be really helpful and really interesting. And I've learned about so much about type six from you. So yeah, I'm really excited to, to dive in. Yeah. So to begin, I'd love to hear a little bit about you, your background, how you came into the Enneagram, all that good stuff. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I pastor along with two other guys. And so I'm a mom and my children are adults now. I went to seminary for, oh, probably 15 years ago, somewhere, maybe 18 years ago. (laughs) And I learned about the Enneagram there in seminary just kind of through some other students, but I didn't buy it. I was like skeptical from the get-go, which should have been a hit. (laughs) But I was just like, I think this stuff is a bunch of bull. And then, you know, there was this symbol on there that looked really cultic. And I was like, this is not okay. And then, of course, I when I started to read more about it and it was encouraged to find out more, about myself to be more self-aware, then it took a whole nother process to find my number. So what were the texts that you started reading that you're like, oh no, this actually makes more sense for you? Yeah. So I have a story. I'll tell a story. I was in staff meeting once and this guy was bugging bad. I mean, like (laughs) lighting me up. I mean, he was so mad. I mean, mad enough for me to, and I've always had like, I have access to anger. I don't know why. And I actually felt very, like a very emotional person. And even when I took the tests, I tested as a two, but I never, it never sat right with me. I was like, I'm not a two. I'm just not that helpful. <laughs> Usually twos are helpful. And I'm just, in the back end of it, I'm not that helpful. And so I went and read B's, B chestnuts, 27 types. Mm-hmm. And then I also had read The Wisdom of the Enneagram. But I used it more because they're pretty thick. I used it more like a resource book. So I tried to flip through it. Like, I want to find out 
what number that guy is. I mean, I don't know what number I am, but I'm really going to figure his psyche out and try to figure out why I'm so mad and what makes him tick. Why does he do this all the time? And I kept reading and I kept reading. And I was sitting there thinking, and I and I got to the six, and I turned to my husband and I said, so, like, who's on the committees in your head? Like, <laughs> do you have pictures of people that come up in your head when you're thinking about, you know, what to do? He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's a he was a five, and I'm like, you know, like when you when you think about things and think about how things go down, like who you're going to, you know, ask for questions and get advice from. Who's on your committees in your head? He said, me. <laughs> I'm the expert in everything. And I went, wait, you don't have like committees in your head or like flow charts, like, you know, of, of thinking through things. And he goes, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Everything in my head I've read and I, everything comes from me. And I thought, oh, I'm the six, not the other guy. Yeah. It was me. So it was a real light bulb moment to think I a project a lot, which I didn't catch on to. And I still do. It's a matter of habit. I do have committees in my head. And I thought everybody had committees that they were consulting about everything. And, um, the whole flow chart in my head of prepping and planning, it just seemed to me the smart thing to do. Like, yeah. why doesn't everyone do this? Yeah. I had a six tell me that when she planned her flow chart, she was like, okay, these are the decision points. And then these are the points where yeah. I need more information. And she yes. already had that planned out. Yes. And the thing is, is I, I don't even know I'm doing it. Yeah. It comes second nature. Like I, that flow chart just came and went and I'm on to the next one. So there's something comforting in the process of creating it that actually gets rid of whatever the problem was. Yeah. Do Do you remember the flowchart? Not often. If okay. I did, I don't think I'd do it again. I think it's actually not the content of the flowchart, but the process okay. of creating it that helps calm the anxiety, which for me, I never really, really connected with. I never, that's why it took me so long to type because I never thought I was a fearful person. I thought maybe an angry person, I would do that or an emotional person, but really I have a square in my head and I was thinking about how I felt. Mm. I wasn't actually feeling it. It wasn't like the center of my knowing. It was square in my head the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to hop back to the the fear versus anger thing in a second, but I'm curious if now you can name like the committee or or are, are they specific voices, specific people? Are they like parts of self? They are specific people for me and I know other sixes don't have them, but they're usually really influential people in my life or experts in a certain field. So if I need a medical question, I have my team of doctors. <laughs> if I have a theological question, I have my team of theologians that I trust and some that I don't. And, um, or if it's like just everyday life, I have friends that I would go, Oh, this is the person I'm going to ask about that. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's not just like committees in your head. It's like you have a list of who's on that committee, but in real life, you go and talk to them. Um, sometimes, yeah. And sometimes I'll just consult them in my head. And then make my own decision because I have over time realized how crazy that makes people. Like it's really <laughs> annoying. And I just thought, oh, I'd like to be asked my advice. So why wouldn't someone else be like to be asked? But I have a lot of interior designer friends and I just moved in there. It was like, oh, brother, here she comes again. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to ask what couch to buy. And I've learned my lesson on that because Usually they tell me, oh, you should do this, but then I can't afford it. So mm. I don't take everyone's advice, and sometimes that's hurtful. So now I'm like, I can do this. I can choose a couch. Yeah. Yeah. Or or Goodness. are you, like, thinking, well, that's not actually what I want. It's like looking for reassurance. I've heard Sixes talk about doing that before. Yeah. I think a lot of it is about affirmation and mm -hmm. 
So there's a little nuance there between needing feedback for admiration and needing feedback for affirmation. I think Mm -hmm. six is, well, I'll just speak for myself. I have for a very long time just thought I, I can't, it's just more of a self doubt than a self critical thing. I'm not that hard on myself in a lot of ways, but I do think I might not be right because I'm not an expert in this. I'm certainly not an expert in interior design. So I need to consult someone who is so that I don't regret it later on. Regrets are real tender place for our sex because we feel like, oh, we should have known better because we we spend our lives prepping and mentally rehearsing everything. Mm -hmm. So when something happens that we didn't have in our bingo card, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not it. Yeah. But that's almost where the self-criticism comes in. It sounds like. It is. And it's like, I should have known or I should, why did I not think do that? Um, So-and-so told me now here I am regretting it. Um, Which is interesting because I've taught, you know, I've taught this for a while and, I know other people just don't live with that as much as they live with, I, you know, I can't fail or I can't be wrong. It's a little different nuance than that. It is like, if only, more of a longing type of thing. If only I had just thought of something else, then we wouldn't be in this spot. It's more of a responsibility thing. Like, I've yeah. got to be the guardian mm-hmm. for the collective, whatever the collective might be. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also kind of makes sense why maybe a test would misidentify you as a two. Yeah, or an eight. Like I thought, mm-hmm. nope, I'm an eight. I'm a protector. I'm trying to protect the, the group here. I'm trying to protect my family or my kids or whatever. Sorry, world, for being a six because none of these groups need my protection. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me yeah. more about the anger versus fear concept and, and how that came up. Yeah. I mean, it just is real accessible emotion for me. Like I, it, it's like the lighting of a wick, like it just goes. And so I think as I've grown older, I'm less impulsive with the anger and I'm more in touch with how I feel. But I do think because I was in my head, it felt like a sense of justice, uh, which is why I always thought it, it, I was an eight. But if I'm really honest with myself, like I was about a two, I'm not that moral. <laughs> don't think in terms of right and wrong. Like, I, I wish I were more moral and I wish I had that kind of term. I'm just thinking of all the facets of, of a side of an issue. Yeah. And I can, I can really see what everybody is thinking about in that situation or even feeling. Sometimes I can get into an emotion of what other people are feeling. And yet at the same time, it's not because it's right or wrong. It's really because there are other options. It's like a multiple choice questions that I love. Like, let's think through all the options. There's mm-hmm. something calming about going through all the options. Again, yeah. a process, not the product or the yeah. content. Yeah, well, that makes sense to me. And I actually also recently, oh, when when we went on our retreat, I was flying to Dallas. Mm-hmm. And I think this is maybe like just a arrow to six which I feel like I've really worn in that, that track over the last couple of years. <laughs> but like we're driving to the airport and I was late, like later than I like to be. Mm-hmm. I think I was still going to get there at least an hour before takeoff. But I think for me, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm panicking. Yeah. So I was like, okay, if they don't let me check my bag, cause it's too late. I was like running through what I was going to do. And Brandon is like, is this like, he's like, that's probably not going to happen. Like, I was like, no, no, no. I just, I just need to think through it and then I'll feel fine. Yeah. Because you have an option. It's again. And I thought it was a seven because I don't like being trapped Mm -hmm. and I don't know what the real nuance is there. I've thought a lot about this, but there is something about when you have options or flowcharts or whatever you want to call it, then you're not trapped. You can find a way out of whatever danger may be awaiting you or problem or snuffy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause there is that sense of like being backed into a corner when you don't have 
any way out. And and I will say that this is just element of authority stuff there with the six as well as that we feel very responsible for our actions and we're trying not to project, but in the process we project. So if it were me, you know, projection means I'm taking what's true about me and assuming that about everybody. And so in my head, I'm assuming that I'm going to be at fault if I missed that flight or mm-hmm. I'm going to be at fault if I chose the wrong microwave or couch or whatever. I'm going to be at fault if I made a bad decision because I didn't think it through. You got to think it through. And so that whole inner thought committee thing mm-hmm. about thinking it through is really a way of saying that's what responsible authoritarian figures should do. Mm-hmm. So if I'm making a decision and no one else is making it with me, well, then I want to consult someone. That's what we're, it would be, the responsible thing. And so it's not like the right thing. It's not like what I feel, but it really is this responsibility authority thing because we desperately don't, we desperately want to be trusted. And at the same time, we don't trust others. Mm-hmm. So it's a real, it's a real merry-go-round there. Like if I can't trust myself, then why would I trust anyone else? Yeah. Do you think your subtype plays into that? Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Seth? <laughs> well, I do. I and I. Do you want to share about a little bit about finding your subtype? Sure, sure. So I know some other sixes, especially on my staff, and one's a sexual six and one's a social six. And we just all assumed that I was a self-pressed six because I'm friendly and nice and warm and all of the things that are described in the book, B. Chestnut's book about the 27 subtypes. Because these other sixes were much, we're all different. And as everyone knows in the Enneagram world, the sixes have the most varied subtypes. They are extremely different. They're either counterphobic or phobic. Um, and when I was listening to one of Urania's podcasts at CP Academy, which we did together, mm-hmm. she was talking about comparing yourself to others of your type. And there were plenty of opportunities to be in groups with sixes. And I remember being in a group with the six and being on Zoom with all sixes and the social sixes and self pressure, there were just no sexual sixes there. And the room, the Zoom room was silent. Like nobody wanted to talk. And it, and everyone had that deer in the headlight kind of look. And the social sixes were like, well, who wants to lead? And in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm not like these guys. <laughs> I was like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. And just put myself out there and there was no social fear. And then as I look back, because they also say, look back into your twenties. Don't let life kind of, cause life kind of adapts you to yeah. different things. And I looked back at my twenties. I'm like, I wasn't, I was never connected to fear. Mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of things as I look back that I had forgotten on that others deemed as risky. So I was like, ah, I'm counterphobic. I didn't realize how counterphobic I was. But I think the sequence matters, and we can get into talking about that because my other good friend who is a sexual six, he has a different sequence. He's sexual, self-present, social, and I have a very high social. So that I think explains the difference between his more blunt, direct way of speaking and my little roundabout way being more warm I think on the thing because of our sequence but I do think both of us are counterphobic yeah that makes sense but I I also do think that you just kind of tell it like it is and sometimes in a really humorous way which I just always appreciate you know Uh, but I uh, I not all not everyone appreciates that (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah but I I I think not everyone in my life appreciates that either but (laughs) I do you think that sometimes like a sexual subtype with type six will have a like more clarity around their issues with authority? Like they're a lot more aware that they have that problem. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know if we're aware of it all the time as much as we are vocal about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the social 
six star, a social dominance, probably going to be concerned about what people in the group. I mean, they, they can sense the power dynamic in rooms really quickly and they don't want to upset the apple cart. And mm-hmm. self-prize ones are the most phobic, right? The most mm-hmm. phobic of all the sixes. So they're not going to be as vocal about it, even if they do know or are sensitive about themselves. They probably won't say much about it yeah. in a group setting. Yeah, but you'll you'll say like, oh, I don't know about that. I do, and I sometimes regret it later. But it it got me where I am now, which is both good and bad because I do think I have an ability to speak truth as I see it. I, I mean, truth is like. Well, we can talk about that too, but I don't know if I'm always right on the one. So then I start to self-doubt after I said it, mm-hmm. but I'm not fearful of saying things. I'm not, I don't generally have social phobias, which I know is a really big deal. Like I didn't realize how hard it is for folks who are social repressed or even just a little bit anxious get when they walk in a room and of, of people. And that's never been a deal for me. And I'm like, well, I have to reconsider my subtype. I don't think that would be self-pressed. Yeah. Not to yes. mention that I now I now I'm pretty sure that I'm self-pressed repressed, which is like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm eating for dinner tonight. You know? <laughs> it's five o'clock, Marta. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah it is. I have no no what no clue. I'll probably go out again. So those are the self-press things that I tend to not, you know, I'm, I'm really out of touch with my body, which is another reason why I knew I wasn't an eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense with the intelligence centers. One thing that is often said about sixes is about the worst case scenario thing. And I really like your reframe of opposite case scenario because gosh, I find that to be so true. Like, yeah. Even if you say this is going to turn out bad, a six will be like, well, or it could, you know, (laughs) they they just got to flip it. So opposite case scenario. Yeah, I think that's kind of how I started to see it, because I think that the sixes get a bad reputation on being worst case scenario people. And for sure we are. There's no doubt. (laughs) I'm not denying that. But there are situations where I've walked in a room where everyone was hopeless, downtrodden. And absolutely like, and I'm like, guys, this is not all that. There's a, there's a ability for us to see all sides. I think, of course, we're going to go for the safest one. That's just part of being a six. But I do think that we are able to see the multifacets of things that others just can't often see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that can be a really useful thing about being a six and then Sometimes worst case scenario does happen. Yeah. Yeah. So step, step knows my story. So I'll just go ahead and tell all the podcast listeners. So I met you actually when my husband was very sick and Mm -hmm. he was on his last treatment for cancer. He fought it for six years and then a year and a half ago he passed away, which was the worst case scenario ever. I just, mm-hmm. yeah, cancer is, is it, it actually, both of my parents have had cancer. My father died of cancer. And in the worst, canary, worst case scenario thinking, I thought I was going to get it. Like, I always mm-hmm. thought, well, I'm in bad cancer someday. So, and people would be like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, yeah, well, cancer. And then my husband got it. And I just thought, what is happening? It just set me off off kilter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was super grateful to have the knowledge I have of the Enneagram, though, because I've said this before, it was a long grieving process because we knew oh, about a year and a half in that it wasn't curable. And so, you know, it was always one one treatment after another. Mm-hmm. And with some hope, but each treatment brought less and less hope. And it was harder and harder and more suffering, obviously. But I just think that for six, grief feels a lot like fear. Yeah. 
I don't know if it, you know, I've talked to other people about how sad they felt and how shocked they felt. For me, it felt panicky. And, and this may have more to do with subtype, but I just thought, well, then I mean, my immediate thought was I've got to quit everything. I can't work. I can't function. I will not be able to live without my husband. Yeah. He's my everything. And the only, I, I honestly believe, have an underlying belief that the only reason why I really could do what I do is for is because of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are really, that was true to, to some extent. <laughs> I'm learning how to do bills on my own. He was brilliant on so many levels that I opted to let him do that, and he took care of us. So, yeah, grief feels like fear a lot of times, but it's also mm-hmm. sadness. And then, then all the emotions, if you're in your head, they get really jumbled up, and you lose focus pretty quickly. And that's a fearful thing for someone in their head to lose focus. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think when we met, and, and you know, we started working on, some projects within our Enneagram training. I just remember you being like, oh yeah, I'm going to keep doing these things. Like I'm going to schedule this group to meet and and things like that. Yeah. Was that, was that weird for you? Like, how is she doing this? Well, that part wasn't weird. The, the one that was weird is when you emailed us and you're like, well, he'll probably die this weekend. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm laughing now, but there's something disassociative that happens. And I don't yeah. really know the psychological term for it, but there was something that was a very, it, it just really went into my head during that time. It was very matter of fact, right? It was mm-hmm. probably sounded blunt coming out. And it's interesting now to talk to people who were observing me at the time. I didn't, I didn't realize how much I was being watched and as to how I was doing the grief process. But I do think people, out of a good concern, are, are watching to see how does this person react when the worst thing happens. And so I'm always interested in that, but I think to a certain degree, I just found some of my work and some of the Enneagram work to be very distracting for mm-hmm. my emotional work because it was so intense. It was so traumatic. And I had a lot to worry about when it came to my kids and my yeah. finances and my job. It just all seemed so overwhelmingly difficult. And with couple that with a six to mm-hmm. think, I can't do this, yeah. but I can do that. Mm-hmm. So I can let people know, I think this is the weekend. And I, you know, I would try to update people through uh, the blog I was writing, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it just is all jumbled up in there. It's yeah. for as a head person, you may not see the emotion because they are probably going to get prepared for the emotion. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think the the moment I'm referring to was in November. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Wow, you remember these things. So the the doctors had told us he had uh, an, emer- an emergency event, an emergent event, and we sat in the hospital for four hours. And then once we finally got back into a room in the ER, because that was in the middle of COVID, mm. he said... The doctor said, it was so surreal. It, the doctor said, so I don't think you're going to make it out of the hospital. You should probably call hospice. And we weren't ready for that because we had a pictured hospice as being well after treatment and not an emergent event. And I think I had to cancel something because of it. And that's probably why I was like, hey, guys, this is what's happening. And because we couldn't believe it. And it was like a... Like, I look back at that day, and I'm like, that was like a soap opera. I remember mm-hmm. Steve saying, doctor, are you telling me I'm going to die? Like, we didn't know the doctor's name because it was the ER doctor. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, you are. Oh, my God. And 
He said, how many more days? It, you know, I picture so mm-hmm. like, I feel like I'm watching it from above and yeah. seeing myself. I mean, I'm totally in a different world. And he goes, well, probably within three to five days. I mean, miraculously, he did not die and he healed himself. And there's a lot of little details that are, I don't want to share, but it was the end of that treatment. And it, and he then went on hospice and he came in and out of hospice for probably another four or five months because mm-hmm. he died in March then of 22. So that was November of 21. There was a whole other five months that yeah. kind of healed himself. And then, but he was, he was young. He was 58 and very healthy and never been yeah. sick a day in his life. So he fought a good fight and, and really, it was really, really hard. Yeah. And hearing about your life and your relationship together is like, so you just had such a beautiful relationship. Yeah. Thank you. I wish you could have known him. Yeah. He was yeah. a five and we, we met on a heady level. I think people thought we mm-hmm. were probably really strange, but he's, he was just, he was a social five. So not your typical five, but he just was, he's a good one. He was brilliant and interesting and, good. He was so good. Yeah. He was a good one. Yeah. Thanks for sharing about him. I know. Yeah, I know. But I think, yeah, every time you talk about him, he just, yeah, I don't know. I like hearing your, your stories about him. Yeah. We're realistic about him. He wasn't perfect and we love to make still the funny things that happen. Yeah. But I, I don't know anyone who, well, I, I just don't know anyone who really lived with gratitude like he did. Mm. And so we have a lot to learn from that, like, and generosity, which is so interesting just to watch someone at the end of their life as the Enneagram Five, which I could probably talk about a little bit better because they're known for, you know, Cording up their resources and their energy and all this, but boy, at the end of his life, he was taking visitors and you know opening the doors for people. It was just so interesting because he was so protective of his introverted time and his own time. But in the last few weeks and the last few months, he just wanted to see people who we loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I'm curious if you saw your type play out in this season, like being like, oh, I knew the worst case was going to happen. Or if this one was not a worst case that you imagined. I think what I imagined was worse than what happened. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know, Steph. I, I might take that back. So. Don't, don't, you know, count on that. I think I imagined so much worse and so many days were good. And Steve was determined to live each day to the full. So it really wasn't until the last month that he wasn't walking every day. And, you know, he loved his dog and he talked to his brothers and his best friends all the time. And so there was just, there was just some precious time. And in fact, the, the COVID thing was so interesting because he got to work from home and we would work, you know, across bedrooms from each other. And so that was a gift. And I think the gratitude part was a, a real big thing. I, I don't know if I would have had the same reaction today if it had happened in a shocking or surprised way, but we had so much time to grieve before he actually died and together and to say what we needed to say and to, to have the kids in cause they're adults and to have them and his brothers and family. Like we had so much time to think about and talk about dying and, and death that, um, that when it actually happened, it was a, 
And we know hear this from several people. It was a relief from the suffering. Mm. Cancer's no joke, man. It it is mm-hmm. painful, and you don't know when it's you know be the most painful, and it steals so much from your life and your relationships and your ability to work. All those things that um, we had a long, long grief. I was really glad that he was no longer suffering. He he was so sharp and so witty and so smart that I think it was mainly, if, you know, like the chemo fog, that bothered him more than any other kind of pain because he he really wanted to be able to be sharp in, in his thoughts. And so when he went into hospice, there was a lot of drugs to keep him in pain. But knowing him as I know him, he would not want to be in that state. Yeah. 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 What do you think? I mean, one, we're terrible at talking about death, like as a society, not you. (laughs) That had to do Um, a lot. Yeah. But I am. And grief is just hard. Like, I think that's like the understatement of the century. What else can you say? There's no real words that contain. Yeah. I actually was talking to someone today whose wife is cancer. And I I actually think this is where art comes in. And Mm. art can do things that words can't do. A picture or a portrait or a film or a song or a poem. (laughs) You know, laughing, but poetry was really something that I connected with because they're not, it's not real wordy and it's not real heady. It's something that is a motive and you can get it, but you can't really explain it. There's no explanation to it because nothing, no explanation is going to make it okay. Mm-hmm. What do you think that would be helpful, especially for a head type, you know? Like that getting into your body, getting into your emotions. Yeah. Well, I do think walks in nature are a really good thing. Although I didn't do it, but my husband did. He was alive and he walked every day and it really helped him. Um, I think that people tend to, tended to give us books and information. And that just was difficult for us. We just couldn't read. And we couldn't, I mean, it was, there's just, our brains were just too overloaded. So again, I think art was good, poetry, music. I love seeing, you know, I love Broadway, I love seeing musicals and all that. So just taking someone out of their head and putting them in an environment that they, that's it, somewhat normal. Like, mm-hmm. oh. We just learn for normality, even if it was a fight or even if it was, you know, just going to Sonic and getting a slush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever it would be is just something that it doesn't have to be big. It's just something that takes you into and back into reality or normality from it's so absurd. It's just the absurdity of life. Like you're in shock for so long. Mm-hmm. That it takes its toll. So just doing something normal is great. Yeah. What do you think that other sixes might need to know about grief? I think that the most helpful thing to me is, was, there's a couple things. One is we always want to know why. I can tell you what not to do. Don't ask someone if you're if a cancer patient has smoked or or what kind of meals they ate or something like that. We got asked a lot, like, well, if his cancer started in his esophagus, did he have a lot of acid reflux or what? Is it I'm his fault? <laughs> Basically, what did he do? Right? You know? Yeah. And I think that's a really human question to ask because I think when we're fearful, we ask why. Mm-hmm. And then we we want to prep, right? We want to keep preparing and doing something that's not going to make that bad thing happen. 
And so I'll quit smoking or drinking or, you know, being around people who do or whatever. And the truth of the matter is, and we, when we talk to our oncologists and genetic counselors, it's like, like, like 75% of cancers are non-traceable. You do not know why. Some cell in your body turns on and starts to multiply. And that's cancer. I mean, the rest of them you can link to something that's poor behavior, but the need to know why and the need to know what's going to happen, particularly for sex and grief, is futile. Like, it is mm-hmm. futile. You will never, ever get an answer that's satisfactory to you. So just give it up is what I say. Do not try to get that answer. Live in the moment. The moment has enough for you. The day has enough for you to prepare for and and collapse the time thing down to just today. And then when you, at the end of the day, look back and say, did you do today or did you not? Yes, we're both still here. Mm-hmm. And you'll actually be able to look back at a collection of days that were better than worse. Mm. So I think our, our need to know what happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future really makes that process of a six, that whole someone must be blamed and projection thing going on, or the whole I'll feel better if I know what to expect. You're not going to know. And and nor should you. And, and honestly, you don't want to. You don't want to know. Mm-hmm. Because it's all different. Everyone's story is so different. So I can't even tell another cancer patient now, this is what's going to happen. And this is what you should do. Because every situation is so different. And, and I, the other thing I would say is, this is my counselor. He said to me, I was flipping out, as sixes sometimes do. Mm-hmm. freaking out on him. And he said, what do you want? Of course, I never know what I want. Mm-hmm. I wanted my husband to live. And he looked at me with that look like we know that's not going to happen. And I said, okay, I just want you to tell me I'm going to be okay. I just want to know I'm going to be okay, right? And I'm kind of yelling at him. <laughs> and he goes, and he always sits, sat really still and he got up and he leaned in and he said, Marta, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I calmed down, took a deep breath, and he said, and it's not going to be okay. You're not. Because how could you be? Mm-hmm. How could you be okay with this happening right now? And I thought, yeah. That's right. I'm supposed to be kind of crazy right now. I'm supposed to be kind of out of my mind right now. So the real validation of how hard it is and how traumatic it is to watch someone you love suffer is a really it was really important for me as a six. Not why did it happen or what's happening next. I really didn't want to talk about all those things. I just wanted to know. I can do hard things, and it's going to be hard. That's yeah. how it is. Life is hard. So yeah. that was helpful to me. I don't know if it's helpful to anyone else. Though. Yeah, I mean, I think it is helpful because when we talk about type 6, sometimes it's like look at your hands, look at your feet, like you're okay, mm-hmm. you're alive. Yeah. And you're not okay. Yeah. Because it hurts. Yeah. You're in pain. Another good question that my therapist would ask me is, where, do, where does it hurt? Mm. And it's okay. Let me locate it somewhere in my body. It was always in my head. Like if you mm-hmm. had a headache or it'd be in my throat where I wanted to cry, but I wasn't allowing myself to cry. All those things. I think other people feel it in different places. Now I feel it in my joints. Hmm. But locating the source of pain in your body and feeling it all the way through, giving yourself space and time to feel all the emotions and all the pain in your body because the body keeps the score right. Mm-hmm. And, and then just knowing this is hard. And, and then being reminded 
of the things that you did before that was hard. So I don't know if I'll ever forget this, but there are still things like at work that I'm like, this is too hard, I'm quitting. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think, wait, I've done the hardest thing. I've done the hardest thing that I think I can ever do. Hey, I'm, I'm still here. At some point, there's a thought that will be annihilated by hard things. Mm. And we need reminders that we did hard things. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it almost sounds like, too, you compartmentalize, like, almost like you were still waiting for the hard thing to happen. Yeah. And then before I knew it, the hard thing happened, and I looked back and I thought, that was hard. Time is weird, too. Like, how grief hits you and how long you go through it, I don't think anyone can predict or know. And it still jumps me at weird times. And I'll talk about it and I cry. And just think giving yourself permission to know that that's, that's a hard thing. Like, I, I had some comment, like, you're really doing this well. And I'm like, who are you? Like, don't, I'm not performing for you. Don't grieve you know? me. Don't grade me. Don't evaluate me on how I'm doing Greek. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, oh, okay, well, I think what they're saying is you did it. Yeah. And, and to, to take that and accept it and say, it was hard. Yeah. And it's still hard. It's still hard. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I can say for myself. I think other, even subtypes of six might have something different. I think that what they learned is people who are ill or chronically ill or have cancer often lose their jobs. Mm. And I think especially women do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just given me more kind of, what is it, energy or gumption to say, this is not right. We're going to, yeah. we're going to do something about that. So I have more energy on maybe my calling or I've always kind of been in a situation as a female pastor where I've been told that I shouldn't or couldn't do it. And so um, I'm kind of leaning into that. Well, we'll see about that. Mm-hmm. Look at me. I'm doing it. Yeah. I might not be doing it well, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, Well, when it comes to the Enneagram, how do you see your calling playing into that as well? Yeah, I think that uh, I love typing people. I love coaching people. I love sitting in the questions. Mm. And I think sitting in uncertainty with people and being fully present to their life speaks really speaks a lot to me and um, I'm able to do it a little bit better now that I've been through significant pain. So I think some of the, you know, the coaching that I do, whether it be on a team building basis or one-on-one is exciting to me. I always learn something. I always Mm -hmm. get more than I give. So I'm really grateful for people who have allowed me to in their lives to to talk about hard things and do hard things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously you have this experience doing hard things and even just like the practical mindfulness aspect that you talked about of like this present moment. Yeah. I think that I don't, I'm not sure how far you want me to go into it, but I do think that there's a spirituality that I've learned over time of, of solitude and silence and learning to wait and, and like I said, be present and learning of the presence of God in my life, mm-hmm. that it's a less productive and church oriented and all the things that I think we think of when we think of evangelical church, that really is a connection to God that I think that all those, all that's in there, it's all part of the same story. And I think that meeting people when they're ready for that is, is something that I'm pretty good at can do that yeah yeah Uh, and so spiritual retreats or things that help people listen to their own situations and and notice where they are in their life story as well as where god is and 
where they can grow spiritually, whatever their faith may be mm-hmm. is. And, and again, I, what I noticed is there's always our friend Shelly and Chad have taught us about burnout and chalk points. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what faith tradition you're from. There's always a critical jury that we go through and there's a, there's something that is outside of ourselves that we cannot prepare for. And that is going to teach us something. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to be able to share my story, but also help people along with their journey. I think sometimes I'm, I definitely needed someone to hold my hand through it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that the life map activity yeah. that you facilitate is so powerful. Those for me. So it's grateful. I'm grateful for those. I think all this, the concepts, the contemplative practices and spiritual practices that I've been really blessed to be part of really served me well in the last mm-hmm. few years, whether it be COVID or work or, you know, cancer, death of my husband. All those practices led me up to a time where I could actually utilize them and it not feel like, oh, I'm just starting now. Like mm-hmm. when, when the stuff really hit the fan, I had some resources that were that were internal, not external, that I could say, oh, it's not everyone else. It's not always everybody else. It's me. Because wherever you go, there you are. So the inner stuff is so critical to your journey. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, like, I just want to call attention as well to your experience working on a team and, and yeah. navigating that organizationally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that if you talk to anyone in ministry or you talk to any spiritual leaders, they'll say it's not a really popular time to be spiritual. There are a lot of division. There's a lot of cultural issues happening. And, you know, we'd be silly to say that it's all fun and games anymore. We just need to get on and grow and have more numbers and make more money. It's, it's really complex world that we're living in and they're really difficult divisions that we all have in our families and our organizations and where we work. There's so much there that is complex that we're mm-hmm. able, the Enneagram can speak right into it and bring unity and bring more understanding of ourselves and how we impact a group or a team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I have two more questions that I always ask everyone. But before yeah. I throw those at you, where can people find you? Like if they yeah. want to contact you for a team training or coaching? Yeah, so my website's still in progress, but email's the best. So it's Marta, M-A-R-T-A dot Gilliland. This is the hard part. <laughs> G-I-L-L-I-L-A-N at gmail.com. And just email me and I can set up a package for you if you'd like me to, or just a typing interview or coaching. Just let me know. But I, when I get my website up and running, I'll, I'll uh, send it to you. Okay. Yeah. And I'll update, update show notes then. Thanks. Cool. Okay. So finally, tell me about a book that has helped you, refreshed you, or shaped you in the last year. So I think I'm a real big fan of Kate Bowler. Have you heard of her? Mm-hmm. So her Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I've Loved is a really, really good book in terms of when something bad happens in your life and something difficult happens in your life, um, how to kind of navigate that journey and and also how to do it, you know, just get back to the sixth thing. A lot of people say the holy idea, the sixth is courage. Um, but I've heard others say it's faith. Mm-hmm. The faith that the universe will just all work out. Yeah. And I, I resonate with that a little bit better than courage, as a, especially as a sexual six, which I think I wasn't courageous. But if you say, do you struggle with faith? I go, oh, Mm-hmm. So that one is a really encouraging Her podcast is good too. But I also like Scott Erickson. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. He's an artist and his latest book is called Say Yes, Discover the 
surprising life beyond the death of a dream. Mm. So he talks a lot about losing the, your dream, whatever that would be, mm-hmm. and and moving on from there. That's been helpful for me. Wow. Yeah. He's an artist, so I, I'm kind of diving into that heart center and that art world because yeah. I think that is is a good relief for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Uh, last question. What is a piece of advice that has really stuck with you? Flat out just quickly. You have more resources than you think you have inside of you. You have more internal resources inside of you than you're ever looking for outside of you. Truth. That's a good one. Yes. Important for six is always consulting their committees, always deciding whether they can trust someone else or the authority figure in the room. It's like, okay, let's stop and just think, where are the resources that I have that don't really depend on me trusting anyone? Yeah. Or not trusting anyone. It's not really up to anyone else whether that happens or not. That's up to me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's super helpful. Okay. Well, keep thank the, you, keep me to that. Hold me accountable for that stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you made a face like you didn't believe it. So I ask you about it. <laughs> it's good. It's a good reminder. I have to remind myself that all the time. I do forget it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I've seen it. That's good. Okay. Well, you can remind me. <laughs> I forget. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me, friend. It's fun. Of course. Thanks so much for listening to Enneagram IRL. If you love the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. This is the easiest way to make sure new people find the show. And it's so helpful for a new podcast like this one. If you want to stay connected, sign up for my email list in the show notes or message me on Instagram at nine types co to tell me your one big takeaway from today's show. I'd love to hear from you. I know there are a million podcasts you could have been listening to, and I feel so grateful that you chose to spend this time with me. Can't wait to meet you right back here for another episode of Enneagram IRL very soon. The Enneagram in Real Life podcast is a production of Nine Types Co. LLC. It's created and produced by Stephanie Baron Hall with editing support from Brandon Hall and additional support from Crits Collaborations. Thanks to Dr. Dreamchip for our amazing theme song, and you can also check out all of their music on Spotify.